dear Father, um, it's been a long summer for some of us, Father, a lot of heat in this part of the country. It's been um, a time of freedom, Father, from school, perhaps vacations. Uh, season, Father, is one of uh, one we look forward to all year and we enjoy when we have it. And, Father, it, it comes and goes quickly. And I know for some of us, Father, this is a, a time of year when we feel the transitions coming. We feel work picking up and school coming back and our regular routine resuming. Father, I pray that you would remind us in the midst of all of this that our call to know and follow you is an ever-present part of our daily life. It's not to come and go. It's not to be a part of a season. And if we have allowed the summer to intrude a little and to pull us away from you, I pray, Father, you'd remind us that you're waiting for us and that we are expected to come back. Maybe in the routine we set up again here in the next month or two, we'll we'll put you back where you belong in our schedule. And Father, if we've followed you faithfully even and stayed with you all summer, Father, I pray that we wouldn't go become tired and and feel that being with you in your word and in the company of our fellow brothers and sisters is just routine. Rather, Father, I pray that we would feel energized by it and look forward to it. But wherever we are in life, Father, I do pray that you'd you continue to grow us and uh, work with us as we work with you, Father, and have patience for our sin, have counsel to our, our hearts on things we need to know and do better. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us for, for that challenge. And in your word this morning, Father, with what we're learning about another people who lived long ago, I pray, Father, you'd be sure to let us see how ourselves in the text, see our own circumstances somehow, and learn from what we hear you telling them so that we may please you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week I read a story about a a street preacher. He he lived in a small town. His name was Nate Evans. This guy would walk around in his town preaching in the street to anyone who drove by, anyone who would listen, and he would proclaim things like, Repent, the end of the world is near. And one day as he was walking near the edge of town, he came upon this, this big lever that was sticking out of the side of the road. It had a sign next to it, and it said, Pull this lever to end the world. And he thought, you know, this is actually the perfect location for me to present a message of coming destruction because the setting is perfect. So Nate set up a pulpit the next day next to this lever, and he just kept preaching that same message. And he did it with such great conviction now, and he had this prop he could point to sitting next to him, that it had a major effect. Soon drivers were stopping instead of driving by, and they were parking, and they were listening by the roadside intently to what he was saying. And this was going great. Until the road got so congested with cars parked around him, that at one moment an 18-wheeler comes barreling down that highway, and as he turns the corner, he's going so fast he sees the traffic jam, he can't stop in time. So to avoid running into a road full of parked cars, the driver, the truck driver, has to swerve off onto the shoulder. Now he's headed straight for Nate and that lever. And so in a split second, the truck driver is going to have to make a decision. He's either going to run over Nate, or is he going to run over that lever? And later, as the driver's explaining his circumstances to the highway patrol officer, he said, I really had no choice. Pointing to Nate's dead body on the side of the road, he said, wait for it, better Nate than Lever. You saw that coming, didn't you? I cite that cute little story because there's always been doomsayers, right? 
There's always been that guy that stands on the street corner predicting the end of the world. But so far, the only end that's ever come is their own. It's easy to make those kinds of predictions, right? It's a whole lot harder to bring them to pass. Unless a herald's proclamations are based on the authority of the Word of God, then they are destined to humiliation. The Lord has revealed to us in His Word that, yes, this world that we live on now, it will one day come to an end. He has told us that is true. He's also revealed the times and circumstances in which that will happen so that we can watch for it to a degree. And we also know from Scripture that the church, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, will not be here at that time. So we're not concerned when we read that Scripture says that God has an appointed end for the world because we're not appointed to that wrath. Even more then, we can completely ignore any doomsayer because, as Jesus said, they are all false. The nation of Israel had a similar outlook. They knew from what their prophets told them that they were God's chosen people, that Israel had been promised a glorious future in a coming kingdom, and Israel had a certain confidence about themselves that they weren't going to see any world calamity, they weren't going to be the subject of any kind of great disaster, because after all, God was on their side. But they had a selective attention. They had heard the promises of blessings, yes, but they conveniently overlooked all the warnings that that same God brought to that same group of people through those very same prophets at times, Concerning the nation's sin, the Lord sent prophet after prophet to the people of Israel over centuries, and he said to them, your sin, your ongoing sin, is going to bring serious consequences because you've rejected my covenant and my word. Now, in the end, what did Israel usually do to those prophets when those prophets spoke these words? They killed them. That history explains why we have chapter 7 in the book of Ezekiel. The Lord is explaining here to his people that judgment is nigh. And he's used pantomime, he's used graphic images, and now he's speaking through Ezekiel's words. But the Lord knows his people are not listening to him. And so today, as we look in chapter 7, we're going to find the Lord speaking again to his nation once more. He's already spoken to them about what's coming upon the land and what's coming upon the people as a result of their sins under the old covenant. Now he's finishing this first section of the book of Ezekiel by speaking to the nation once more, but now about their prosperity and about their safety in the land and outside the land. That just because Israel is God's covenant people, that does not mean that you are safe from God's vengeance if you persist in sin. On the contrary, it was because Israel was God's covenant people that they would see an accounting for their sin. Because they are in a covenant with a covenant-keeping God. And so the Lord now speaks to them once more in this first section of the book through Ezekiel. And this is now about 592 B.C. We'll come back to that dating next time and you'll see why that matters. But in 592 B.C., in the summertime or so, this is what we hear from the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. Chapter 7, let's read verses 1 through 9. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end, the end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways and bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a unique disaster. Behold, it is coming. 
An end is coming. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it has come. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. Tumult, rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will shortly pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. Judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. It's a great Bible word, isn't it? Smiting. All right, so this is a hard message. We know that. We've been hearing this now for several weeks. He has a covenant with his people, Israel, and there is a future glory destined for them because of that covenant. But that doesn't mean he's ambivalent about what they do in the meantime. And that's the circumstance you see here. And I want you to imagine Ezekiel standing on a street corner somewhere in Tel Aviv, the ancient Tel Aviv, the one that they're living in now in Babylon. And he's yelling on the street corner the words you just read. An end! The end is coming on the four corners of the land. Does that remind you of anybody? All he needs is the sandwich board hanging off of his body, right? That's what the Lord's told him to do. And I'm sure it had the predictable effect on the people of Israel. Maybe a few were listening, but more likely, most people looked at him like some kind of crazy old man. Based on not only his message, but all that is done before this. Remember, this prophecy is coming on the heels of 14 months of Ezekiel lying on the ground. Remember, he spent 430 days laying on one side or the other, staring at a brick while holding an iron plate in front of him. Anyone would be excused at this point of thinking Ezekiel was missing a few crayons in the box, right? It's meant to be mocking of them in the way God is presenting this. So now he's moved from being a curiosity to being a threat. You know, we have a saying in the church when the preacher starts speaking about things that hit us a little too closely. We say, you move from preaching to meddling. You've heard this? So he's moved from being a curiosity to being a real threat. Because he's telling the people of Israel that the Lord's about to bring a measure of destruction upon them that they have never seen before. But what's really interesting about this to me, this whole scene, is if you remember, he's in Babylon. He's speaking to exiles who've already experienced earlier phases of this judgment. They've already been taken captive. What the Lord's speaking about is a yet-to-come third wave of destruction that will hit the city of Jerusalem. But since this particular audience has already seen their city attacked and they're already sitting in captivity, you might wonder, what's the point in the message for their sake? If you and I were present in this moment where they are now, we might respond to Ezekiel by saying, well, that message is a little late. Look where we are, Ezekiel. But friends, that's not how Israel thought. That's not their mindset. Though they were living in captivity and many other Jews with them, they knew their city still stood back in Judah. Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. Their walls at this point were still mostly intact. The city was still mostly defended. The temple still stood. The priests were still there making daily sacrifices. The fields were still being planted. The feasts were still being celebrated. For those Jews who had yet to be taken captive, back in Judah, life went on. So from the exile's point of view, their situation was just temporary. That's what they were telling themselves. Well, you could compare their experience to that of a hostage. Like, think about back to the times of the American hostage crisis in Tehran in the late 70s, right? They were in dire circumstances. I'm sure their situation was very difficult. But one thing that never entered into their mind, I assure you, was that the United States was at risk of destruction while they were sitting in Tehran. That never occurred to them. So in their mind, they always hoped for that day they would get to go home. That's how it felt 
to be in exile in Babylon at this point. They had hope that they would go home one day. And as long as Jerusalem continued to exist, they believed the Lord was going to protect them. And if they didn't get back there personally for some reason, well, at least they knew their sons and daughters would be back there at some point. It's the difference between feeling a threat and feeling an existential threat, a threat to your existence. They never considered the possibility that their city and that their temple would be utterly destroyed and all Jews moved out of the land for a period of time. And that confidence was not based in their own strength. There's no indication from Scripture that the Jews thought that they were just that strong, that they had no fear. No, it was based in an expectation that the God of Israel would protect his people forever, regardless of the threat. And you know why they felt that way? Because history taught them that that's what God would do, at least the history of their life up to that point. The history of Israel would seem to have supported that conclusion because multiple times over history, if you go back and look at what's recorded in First and Second Kings and what's recorded in First and Second Samuel, you've seen time after time the nation confronted by superior forces, Canaanites, Philistines, Assyrians, didn't matter. And time and time again, Israel would emerge victorious in the end. God might give them over to their enemies for a short time, but that was only for a short time, and then he would bring them back. On one occasion, the one that's actually most recent to this situation, the entire city of Jerusalem is preserved from an overwhelming Assyrian force that comes and sieges the city. And you know how the Lord protected them under those circumstances? He sends the angel of the Lord, Christ pre-incarnate, And the angel of the Lord goes out on one night and single-handedly kills 185,000 men in the Assyrian army. Friends, if that's your history, you're not really worried about being in exile. I mean, it's not convenient. It's not fitting into your plan. But it's not the end of your nation, right? As long as you still have the nation back in Judah, you're not worried. You're just waiting for the eventual defeat that God will bring. But despite the Lord's mercy and His faithfulness to them in the way that He had shown year after year, Israel continued to sin against him. And not in the simple sense of sin. We're not just talking about people who have a bad day. We're talking about systematic, institutional idolatry across the whole of the nation. And so that eventually caught up with them. And the time has now come, according to what God is speaking through Ezekiel, for the consequences of all of that sin to rest on their own heads. And the first thing the Lord wants to make sure these people understand is why. Before the event takes place, he needs them to understand why it's taking place. And there's a couple of phrases that stand out in this passage. Notice the Lord repeats five times in the passage I read that the end is coming. It comes up five times if you count through it. So you've got this unjustified confidence. You are thinking that your days of comfort and protection are right over the horizon. You need to understand that's not the way this is going to play out. It's coming to an end. In fact, as the Lord says, it's already ended. It's as good as done. Evidenced by the fact that they're sitting in exile right now. You're already in the middle of what I'm doing and it's headed somewhere you don't expect. And then the second thing that stands out in this passage, twice the Lord emphasizes that these judgments will bring Israel to know that He is the Lord. We've said this already from past weeks. This is the central idea of the book of Ezekiel. Knowing who their true God is as opposed to all the idolatry. And that's the central problem that the Lord is trying to fix. This episode is not merely retribution. It's bigger than that. This coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians is going to bring Israel back to an understanding of who their true God is. You remember last week we talked about this. That after this moment in history, Israel never again engaged in widespread idolatry. 
As God said, this event was so dramatic, it forever changed their future as a nation. They have never again returned to idolatry. And the Lord's hard treatment of his people is the result of centuries of them doing the wrong thing. And he says here, I'm going to put this back on you. I'm long-suffering, but I'm done. It's over. Now's the time for you to understand what you've done. And he keeps his word. He acts in keeping with his word. Look where he goes next, verse 10. He says, Behold the day. Behold, it's coming. Your doom has gone forth. The rod has budded. Arrogance has blossomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, none of their people, none of their wealth, nor anything eminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn. For wrath is against all their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he sold as long as they both live. For the vision regarding all their multitude will not be averted, nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. The starting point here in verse 10 is essentially this. The die is cast for you, Israel. The doom is coming, can't be stopped. So what we're hearing is, this is not a warning so as to cause Israel to change their ways and avoid the outcome. This is a warning so that when it comes, you'll understand why it's coming. So it's inevitable. And he explains the reason for it using a metaphor. He talks here about a blossoming rod. I want you to imagine a weed. I'm going to use a weed because we're not talking about something that's beautiful. We're talking about sin. So imagine a weed growing up out of the ground. If you let it grow long enough, if you don't cut it down, eventually it gets pretty strong. Some weeds will get pretty strong stalks on them. They'll grow pretty tall. And ultimately it'll blossom so that it can reproduce itself, right? Well, that's what's happening to Israel. That's the picture that God is describing here. Like a weed left to grow, Israel's sin, their violent and rebellious hearts have grown into what he calls a rod of wickedness. Think of a stem of a plant so strong now that it cannot be bent. Eventually, he says, it has budded now into arrogance, which is their unjustified confidence that somehow it's all going to be fine for them in the end. Oh, God will forgive us. He's always on our side. It doesn't matter that we don't worship him anymore. Eh, it's all going to work out. God granted this nation centuries to repent, but that mercy just emboldened them to sin all the more. What the nation did was misinterpret the Lord's patience as approval. And it gave more opportunity for their hearts to harden. The Lord gave Israel time to climb out of the hole that they had dug for themselves, and what they used that time for was to dig deeper instead of to climb up out. And they told themselves, the Lord appreciates all the dirt. Now, Scripture makes very clear that the Lord is merciful. And the Lord is patient with his children. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and great in loving kindness. You can talk about God as a parent, as a father. And in that sense, the Lord is literally the perfect father when it comes to how he deals with disobedient children. If you've ever witnessed a parent responding a little too quickly or a little too angrily, to their children, when their children are doing something wrong, or if you've ever been that parent for a moment, then you can appreciate the importance, the value of being slow to anger. Having a friend or having a parent or having a spouse who is slow to anger when you make mistakes, that's a blessing, isn't it? Undeserved, but it's a blessing. But having a God who is slow to anger in the face of your sin. Friends, as the old commercial used to say, that's priceless. 
But in all cases, whether a parent or a spouse or God, you can misuse that mercy, can't you? When it comes your way. You can allow a parent's slowness to anger or a spouse's slowness to anger to become your license for further sin. Because you'll tell yourself, you'll say, well, the Lord's not been dealing with my sin. I haven't felt any repercussions for it. That must mean he's not concerned with my behavior. Also that I can just continue. It's all been good up to now. That false sense of security becomes your license, your reason to continue in sin. And if you do, you're squandering the Lord's patience. The Bible would say you're testing it. Believers in Jesus Christ are saved from the penalty of sin in eternity. Our faith in Christ has cleared our debts before God. We're credited with His perfection, His righteousness. So our heavenly standing, as far as God sees us from heaven, our heavenly standing with God is perfection because of Christ's perfection appointed or accredited to us. And you can never lose what's been given to you freely. You can never sin your way out of a righteousness that was not yours to begin with. That's the promise we have in the New Covenant. Meanwhile, we who have been saved are called to live for the goal of pleasing the Lord, to seek to keep His commandments as best we can. And we're to cooperate with the Spirit of God, who will then help us put away our sin and conform our lives to the Word of God. But along the way, we're going to make mistakes. Along the way, that process will reveal where we still have work to do. The Lord, though, as the Scripture says, is loving and merciful toward His children. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He gives us time to repent. He gives us opportunity to back up and go back to a life of obedience if we need to. He's our perfect Father. But don't mistake His patience for disinterest in your sin, much less approval of your sin. The Bible says if we go on sinning willfully, eventually He will act to correct us. And that's what He's doing here with Israel. The severity of His response in this case was a direct result, He says, of the severity of their sin and the length of time that He waited for them to correct it. So there is a proportionality implied here. I'm not making a rule that somehow constrains God. I'm not saying it that way. But I think it's a general principle in Scripture that as God allows us time to repent, if our sin goes further and deeper, then we stand to receive a greater, a harsher discipline from the Lord should He choose to act. It's a simple principle. In our case, we're not appointed to the wrath of eternity because our faith in Christ has saved us from that no matter what we do. We're talking here instead about temporal Responses, The responses God may make to us in this life as we walk with Him. Just as a parent might make responses to a child who is disobedient, that doesn't in any way diminish the relationship. It doesn't suggest the child is no longer a child. In fact, it's because you're a child that you receive your father's discipline. But it does remind us that the father has an obligation to respond to sin. It's just that our Father in Heaven is so perfect that His patience and His long-suffering nature might lead us to think incorrectly that He doesn't care when we sin. The longer the Lord gives us to repent and return, the more important it is that we do it. Don't test the Lord to see if He's prepared to do something if we spurn His patience. In verses 12 and 13, for example, the Lord says, He will take from Israel all their wealth. This is what he says. He says, neither the buyer nor the seller will be able to rejoice. And what he's referring to here are the unique circumstances of commerce that developed in the days between the second battle of Jerusalem 
and the final battle of Jerusalem, which is the one God is predicting. After Nebuchadnezzar's army came into town and defeated the city on the first and second occasions, the landowners of Israel, those in Judah who had land in that area, they began to worry, naturally, about the future prospects for their country. Remember, after the first attack, you think it's a one-off. You don't expect anything more than that. After the second attack, now you've got a pattern. And you're starting to wonder where this pattern is leading as you plan your future. They could not be sure that they'd be around to enjoy their land should there be another attack. So what began to develop was a buyer's market. Sellers began trying to sell land, trying to liquidate their property holdings to obtain something they could take with them should they be sent into exile. But with everyone looking to sell their property, what do you think that does to the price of land? The value of property began to drop so that even the seller who did find a buyer, notice he says, would mourn. They're mourning the prospect of giving up valuable land at fire sale prices during this time of history. Naturally, those willing to buy the land, despite the uncertain future, well, they're rejoicing at least at first because they got such a good deal on land. They obtained it at a fraction of the value. And what they're hoping is that there won't be a third attack, and over time they'll be able to use this land that they bought so cheaply to earn a lot of profit. So both seller and buyer in that day are working on an assumption. They're assuming that despite the troubles they've seen so far, Israel is going to continue. So in this case, the buyer is assuming there'll still be something to do with the land, and the seller's assuming I'll still have use of whatever I get for my land. Right? My gold will still be valuable to me. A buyer only rejoices if he assumes that. A seller only mourns if he assumes somebody else is going to profit from his land that he wish he could have held on to. But neither assumption was true. The law of Israel says that you could not sell land permanently. That land had to return to its original owner, at the 49th year during the Jubilee. The idea was God assigned the land to tribes, and those assignments can't change, except in a temporary way. You know, that's still followed in Israel today, the state of Israel today. The government owns 90% of the land in the nation of Israel, and that land cannot be sold to anyone. It can only be leased for 49 years. That's part of their law. So the Lord says in verse 13 that the seller will not regain the property for as long as both he and the buyer lives. What he's saying is that this entire nation will be outside the land so long that they won't be able to enjoy the freedom of the Jubilee. There'll be no returning of land to anybody. You won't be there. Which means the Lord is stripping the people of their source of power and strength, that is, their land. You remember a couple weeks ago I said the Lord here is systematically tearing down what promises He gave to the nation in the Abrahamic Covenant. In the Abrahamic Covenant, the Lord said He would give to Abraham and his descendants a land, and He would give them a posterity, a wealth in this land, and He would bless them as chief nation on the earth. And now He's judging His people. He's judging their land. We saw that last week. He's judging the people themselves. We saw that two weeks ago. And now He's judging their prosperity or their strength. And that prosperity or strength centered on their security in the land, their production of the land. Now remember, those promises in the Abrahamic covenant are reserved for those who believe what Abraham believed. In the meantime, the Lord said through the old covenant that the nation as a whole could enjoy them for a time on earth if they would keep the covenant's requirements. But since they've disobeyed them, now they're going to see an earthly consequence. They're going to lose this source of strength. Now with the rest of this chapter, verses 14 through 27, I'm going to read it in one fell swoop. In this section as I read it, we're going to summarize it with four points that illustrate what God is doing to remove their wealth. I'll read it all the way through first. Verse 14. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready. 
but no one is going to the battle. For my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside, and the plague and the famine are within. He who is in the field will die by the sword. Famine and plague will also consume those in the city. Even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each over his own iniquity. All hands will hang limp, and all knees will become like water. They will gird themselves with sackcloth, and shuddering will overwhelm them, and shame will be on all faces, and baldness on all their heads. They will fling their silver into the streets, and their gold will become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion of stumbling. They transformed the beauty of his ornaments into pride, and they made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. And therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. I will give it into the hands of the foreigners as plunder, and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane it. I will also turn my face from them, and they will profane my secret place. Then robbers will enter and profane it. Make the chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of the nations, and they will possess their houses. I will also make the pride of the strong ones cease, and their holy places will be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be added to rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the priest will be clothed with horror, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I will deal with them. And by their judgments, I will judge them. And they will know that I am the Lord. Let's summarize this section in four points, as I said. First, the Lord takes their strength to fight, he says, and prevents them from defeating their enemies. He says in verses 14 and 15, he says, The nation will meet Babylon for battle, but in the end, no one will actually go into battle. And historically, that's exactly what happened. Uh, We know from historical records that as the Babylonians approached Jerusalem, remember they seized the city for a time, causing so much difficulty in the city, so much famine in the city, they killed every Jew they encountered on the outside of the city with sword. And by the time they were breaching the walls of the city, there was no fight on the inside because the people were so malnourished they could barely stand up, much less hold a sword. So there's no fight. The Lord said this would happen so that they know it's the Lord bringing it to pass. Secondly, he says the survivors will lack the strength of comfort and protection when they leave the city. They'll be like doves, he says, which is a way of expressing they'll be exposed, they'll be defenseless, and they'll be mourning, you know, like the sound of a dove. And it will leave them limp. They'll dress in sackcloth, which is an indication of mourning. And they'll proceed into the nations bearing their shame for having been so utterly defeated and humbled. And notice what he says at the end. They'll know why. They'll say they're shameful of their iniquity. They won't be walking around saying, God did this to us, how dare you? They'll be saying, we did this to ourselves, our sin brought us to this point. Thirdly, the strength of their wealth will fail them. He says in verse 19, that the people will throw their gold and silver treasures on the ground. So the irony is, the guy that sold his land to get a bunch of gold stuff, that's not worth anything to him anymore. He's throwing it away because it's just weight. It's just weighing him down. Gold and silver can't buy freedom from an army that is intent on conquest. You're not going to buy your way out of this problem. And you can't buy food when there is no food to purchase when you're within the city under siege. 
There's a point in time where things get so bad that that little coin you have or that little piece of paper you have that says it's worth something stops being worth something. Ask Venezuela. In this case, gold and silver is worth something intrinsically, but the defeating force, the Babylonians, they were going to take it anyway. They didn't need you to give it to them. Moreover, the Lord says in verse 20 that these precious objects came from material that the people stole from the temple. Isn't that interesting? They took temple artifacts made of gold and they reused them as their own little baubles and trinkets. They were detestable to the Lord. And so he says, I'm going to act to make their contraband abhorrent to them. What was once treasured will become plunder for the enemies. In verse 22 he says, I'm even going to allow these people that are coming in, the Babylonians, to rob my own temple. And the reason he says that is because at this point his own people, Israel, had already profaned the temple. So it was a small matter to let Gentiles come in and do the same at that point. And then fourth and finally, the Lord will, it says, withdraw from Israel the strength of his counsel and protection. Do you see that at the end? He says at the end that he would declare they would no longer have the opportunity to seek the word of the Lord, to know what his counsel is. And in the end, friends, that's the only real strength of Israel. That's the only thing Israel ever had. You remember in the law itself in Deuteronomy, when the Lord said this in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he said this, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other of the peoples. You were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand. And he goes on. Israel was nothing apart from the Lord's choice to make them strong for his name's sake. And now the Lord is saying, I'm bringing to an end, for a time anyway, that protection. And he says in verse 23, notice that phrase in verse 23, make the chain. In Texas we'd say, get a rope. The idea is, we're going to chain you up, literally as slaves, on a chain gang. We're going to have you all strapped to a long chain, tied up, and then we're going to tie the one end to a horse, and we're just going to ride you out of town. That's what they did. And in some cases they actually put rings through the noses of people, and that's where the chain was attached. It was not a pleasant experience. They're going to be subject to the humiliation of captivity at the hands of Gentiles. And not just any Gentile nation. You notice he says, the worst of the nations, Babylon, would come in and occupy the house of the Lord and take his people. Though through all of this, the Lord is bringing to an end Israel's pride, self-assurance, arrogance, where before the Lord was long-suffering, waiting for his people to repent and cry out, well, the time for mercy now is over. And in verse 25, he says, when they cry out, and of course they're going to cry out. This is not going to be something that they're going to endure silently. He says, when they cry out in anguish for peace, there's not going to be anything. No peace. Disaster will just follow disaster. And then he says, worst of all, when they want to hear from the Lord, verse 26, he says, when they seek for a vision from a prophet or a word from the Lord, there will be none. How many spouses will attest to the fact that silent treatment is the absolute worst thing that you can endure when you're going through a difficult time, right? If the other person won't even talk to you, the whole thing just is is really difficult. But imagine this now from a supernatural perspective. You're a nation because God made you. You have meaning and relevance in the world because God says you did. And then he goes silent on you. The law, he says, will be lost from the priesthood and from the council of the elders. The people will have only silence. They will lose the strength of knowing his counsel, and that means they'll lose everything. He says, kings will mourn, people will tremble, and all they receive will be according to what they themselves have done in verse 
27. So that they'll know that I am the Lord. I think, as we end today, I think these four steps you see outlined from this passage, I think this is actually a general pattern for the way the Lord disciplines His people. And test me and see if I'm right. When we live in open rebellion to Him and to His Word, He first waits patiently, and He gives opportunity for repentance. But when and if the time comes for Him to act, I see in this passage a pattern for how He chooses to act. First, He removes our protection from attack. That attack might come from the enemy. It might come from the consequences of our sin. But in one way or another, He begins to get our attention by letting that attack come where before He was holding it off. To awaken our heart. To give us something to think about. Now, if that doesn't work, then He goes to step two. He removes our comforts. Those things you rely on. Those things that you use to compensate for the unfulfilling emptiness that sin has brought to you. He'll take your peace. He'll take your security. He'll take your reputation. Maybe He'll take some of your possessions. He's trying to take your pride. He'll strip anything away that stands between you and obedience in this area of life's comforts. And then if that doesn't work, He'll move to your physical strength, as He did with Israel. He'll bring ailments, perhaps, weaknesses. He brings you to a point in which you begin to call into question the permanence of your body because the hope is it will move your head to the eternal. Nothing leads a person to thinking about God and the eternal faster than coming face to face with the frailties of your own body. And then if nothing else works, if all else fails, the Lord will cut us off from the counsel of His people and from His word. You'll find yourself wandering in a desert, spiritually speaking. You'll be left to the world's counsel. You won't be in the church, usually out of self-selection. You're so down in your sin and in your consequences of it, you just stop going to church. Or maybe the church invokes discipline on that person and puts them outside the church. Paul invoked that very penalty in at least one occasion, as we read in Scripture, for that sinner in Corinth who was engaged in a particularly offensive form of sin within that church. Now, I don't say this is a firm rule. I'm not saying God does every step every time. What I'm saying, though, there is this pattern. If you want another example of it, remember the story of Job. Now, Job was not a man who was sinning. God used him as an example of righteousness. But as he goes through that process with Job, what was the pattern? First, he removed defense from spiritual attack. He allowed Satan to begin attack. Secondly, he permitted the removal of Job's possessions, of his comforts. Thirdly, he gave physical weaknesses to Job. And then finally, he removed his own counsel for a time so that all that Job had left were three clueless friends who kept giving him worldly advice. This is how God begins to strip away the world. The point is, there's an easy way to learn what God wants us to learn, and there's a hard way to learn what God wants us to learn. The easy way is to take full advantage of His mercy and His long-suffering patience by repenting of those things that are in our life that need to be dealt with, or even if He started to show some of that discipline in steps one or two or three, coming to our senses before it goes to the end. Don't force the Lord's hand. And the hard way? The hard way is to write it out. But I can tell you now who wins. In the end, we all go to heaven, but wouldn't you rather take the ride from here to there in obedience with the blessings that come from obedience, or would you rather go through what Israel went through? I know what my vote is. I hope you're on the same page. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for the lessons of Israel. Thank you for your long-suffering, patient, merciful nature and character. Father, we deserve none of that, and yet you show us so much. Don't let us squander it, Father. Help each of us live in the way you've called us because of who you are and what you've done for us. 
And we pray, Father, that if we are in the midst of a struggle, if we have in our life these things that must change, I pray, Father, that your mercy would go just a step further for all of us. Give us more time, but let us use that time to repent and to do as you've called us to do. I pray, Father, for that, for we all, Father, have mistakes. We all have need for mercy. We're all thankful, Father, that you give it to us on the basis of your Son's perfect sacrifice. In his name we pray. Amen.